Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your uh, written word that we have before us. And we ask that uh, by your spirit that it would be come, come alive in us, set us on fire, help us to uh, trust in you and to walk with you more faithfully because of it, because of uh, your promise. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, very often a New, a New Year's Day sermon is devoted to looking back uh, where we've been so we can give thanks to God for where we've been uh, and so we can try to discern where he's leading us as we go forward, keeping our eyes on Jesus as the writer to the Hebrews uh, challenges us to do. And this morning I'd like to keep, that, keep up that tradition somewhat by putting this challenge to us. Let's consider that as Christians we're called to be world Christians. Christians who delight in and welcome uh, the fact that throughout history God has been in the business of calling together uh, sinners from all nations into the fellowship of the triune God. And that in doing that, his purpose is to make us one people, bound together by the same spirit to the Lord Jesus. I think the call to be world Christians is, is a particularly urgent one today. Consider that a startling fact of our, of our times is global migration on a massive scale. Now, my wife, Stella, works in that area of migration. And so these sort of uh, statistics are kind of always there before us. According to the UNHCR, that's the uh, United Nations Refugee Agency, the, the number of forcibly displaced individuals last year, 2022, reached reach the mark of 103 million. And apart from forced migration, there's all the ordinary, uh, ordinary movement brought about uh, by labor migration, uh, commerce, and just tourism. And the, the effect of all this together is that global crossings and exchange uh, is the stuff of ordinary life for us. So that we're not only, we're not only encountering people of other faiths and belief systems, but we're encountering Christians of other traditions and temperaments and dialects and so forth. And I think that uh, if we're guided by Acts chapter 15, uh, I think uh, we, can, we can reflect uh, on how mission and unity are related uh, to one another. If you were with, with us here in November, you may recall that we looked at the task of mission where we find ourselves. When I spoke about mission, uh, I think it was November 6th, if I'm not mistaken, drawing from 1 Peter 2. And then we looked at the task of, of how that task of mission where we find ourselves is actually related to the task of going to all the nations. Uh, and we looked at Acts chapter 17. So today we back up into 15, and we come back to Jerusalem, if you like, uh, and to the question of Christian unity, but without actually changing the question, the basic question, what is mission? So what does mission have to do with unity? <clears throat> but before actually looking at the passage with you, there's something of a roadblock I think we have to, have to clear uh, out of the way. Since the question of Christian unity can be a, a really complicated one. The main reason is that it's not actually quite clear 
just what sort of unity we're called to as Christians. At times, we've been tempted to focus just on a kind of heart unity that has little or nothing to do with uh, external things like uh, institutions or networks or, or even beliefs. I recall a song some years ago, and I'm dating myself, that went like this, and I think I probably even sang it. Uh, In our hearts we're undivided, worshiping one Savior, one Lord. In our hearts we're undivided, bound by his Spirit forevermore. But then, then the next stanza began like this. It doesn't matter if we agree. I'm not sure if I stumbled at that point or not. Maybe I did, maybe I did later on. <clears throat> is, that what we're, uh, is that what we're to be content with, a kind of hidden inward unity, not worrying about doctrine and order and other external things? Well, it might seem that way, since when Christians get around to uh, the matter of visible unity, as we do on occasion, we often throw up our hands. Uh, and say, forget it, we've been there, we've tried that, see how all those ecumenical projects inevitably get derailed, uh, we might say, or how we get bogged down in uh, meetings that are just there for their own sake, and so on. And I, I've studied a, a little bit of the history of ecumenism, and I know, I know how it can be this mixed bag, right, and how uh, institutional ecumenism often is an animal of its own that Uh, seems to uh, get us distracted from the real work. And originally, ecumenism grew out of mission. And so I think it's good to remember that, even though it did get sort of hijacked along the way. But it's clear in Scripture, um, or what's clear in Scripture uh, is a celebration uh, and even a call to unity that isn't just a hidden thing, even though this hidden dimension is, of course, there. Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. In other words, the same truth and the same judgment. Unity in the Bible is not something that's, that's just taken for granted, something that's just there. While it is a gift of the Holy Spirit, it's also a task for God's people. You might ask, well, isn't the church's job just to get on with the work of of going to the nations and making disciples? In any case, do we really expect to see all the churches reunited as one under one visible institution before Jesus comes again? Well, to the first question, we can say most certainly the church's main job under knowing the living God himself, is to make the living God known. Whenever the church forgets the Great Commission, it, it really gives up on its right to be called a church. Whenever it thinks that its main business is just to look after the needs of its members, then uh, it just becomes another club, another, another one more volunteer organization. And the whole thrust of Acts is one, is one of a message uh, of salvation that's going global. It's a from here to there uh, message, from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth story that's being told. 
To answer the second question, no, the bringing together of all the churches into full confessional, sacramental, structural unity before Jesus comes again is extremely unlikely, humanly speaking. Our divisions require so many levels of mediation, and believe me, I've joined in on a few of those <laughs> levels of mediation uh, through the privilege of, of, of working in, in different places and different churches. And that the, the task would be nothing short of overwhelming. I won't go into examples because I think you can probably come up with your own. And yet, God's plan for the bridegroom is not multiple brides. While, of course, there are cultural reasons for our divisions, to, actually, to try to make peace with our fragmentation and to encourage it through various forms of individualism and maybe empire building is to damage our witness in the world and maybe to say to the world, yes, we may preach a message of reconciliation, but it doesn't actually apply to our horizontal relationships. I think that as we become more and more aware that the church is a global reality, one of the, great, one of the key issues in the world Christian movement today, I think, is, a, is the matter of unity. So what sort of unity are we to hope for and work towards then? Does the Bible speak to this? And I think it does. I think the message comes uh, to us when we ask the question, okay, I understand the from here to there vision, the one about going from my, out from my home church to all nations, but is there a from there to here movement that corresponds to it? Is there some indication that mission also involves a from the uttermost parts of the earth to back to Jerusalem thrust? And if we had been given, as, I'm sorry, as if we had been given the commission, go ye therefore back to Jerusalem and... Well, if we were looking for something like that, we'd have to turn to a passage like Acts 15. Because there in that episode in the life of the early church, it becomes clear that the Great Commission didn't mean go to all nations to make disciples. And when you get there, when you get to the one to which you, you're called, consider that your final destination. I think I tried to make that point in one of the, uh, one of the earlier talks. What am, I, what am I trying to say by that? I'm trying to say that, uh, that the church never comes to rest in one place. It never stops being a sent people. Rather, the church is a people uh, God has seen fit to use to bring a word to yet other people groups, even the original community, the mother church, back in, in Jerusalem. You might say, well, but that's, that's not mission. A word that God gives you you for a sister church or even the mother church well is a word maybe it's a word of encouragement maybe it's a rebuke uh, but it's not a word that we would call a missionary word and at this point we might ha have to have another look at what mission actually is Ephesians 2 6 speaks of it as reconciliation between Jew and Gentile through the cross Colossians 1 puts it in terms of reconciling all things to God whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's mission, in fact, involves believers in, in each other's lives just as much as, as it involves us in the world. And these, these go hand in hand. We are, we are constantly in the, in, if we take 
a word that the Catholics prefer, evangelization. We're constantly in the business of evangelization under God and even of ourselves. It's a reciprocal thing. So let's work our way through the passage uh, to learn just how this from there back to here vision works itself out. And I think to get a glimpse of that, we need to put on a different set of reading glasses this morning. Instead of reading the passage as Gentile believers, let's try to, to think of ourselves as Jewish mother church believers with James and Peter as our, as our elders and ask ourselves, what are we learning as the gospel goes out through people like Paul to the nations? What are we learning about the way to handle our differences? And, what, and as we learn about that, what is the Holy Spirit also teaching us about unity? What is it based on and what's it for? So I want to consider the things that, uh, that we learn as followers of Jesus in Jerusalem under three headings. A dispute that emerges, a divine work that is named, and a decision that is taken. A dispute that emerges, a divine work that is named, and a decision that is taken. So first, the dispute that emerges. So under, the, under this heading, we first of all have the sheer fact of disagreements. The fact that Christianity is to be a world movement taking root in very diverse cultures means that disagreements are going to be inevitable. In this case, beliefs that we hold dear as Jewish Christians uh, are, inev- are being tested Verse, verses 1 to 2, the first part of 2, uh, tell us that certain people, and we can modify the text slightly, to say certain leaders of ours have gone out or have gone up to Antioch and have been teaching the believers this. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. What this debate amounts to is that we're being forced to ask ourselves this. Is the ceremonial law by which we know ourselves to be part of God's covenant family and children of the promise essential for salvation? Or in the gospel reading, if if even Jesus who knew no sin, was circumcised, can we let go of that ancient custom and still identify with him? We're struggling with this. In the second place, we're learning as Jewish believers that the disagreements that emerge are not meant to to just be ignored on the assumption, well, we belong to different cultures, so we won't try to resolve our differences. Instead, we'll just celebrate them as as a, a modern pluralist might do rather our differences are meant to be dealt with and in this case the initiative is coming from the great center of gentile christianity antioch remember the early centers of christianity antioch being prominent and through their initiative there we're getting a sense of here in the mother church that christian communities in different places are actually interdependent So we read in 2b, in verse 2b, that Paul and Barnabas are sent with some others to go up to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and elders about the matter. So the dispute has 
uh, emerged. Two, part two, the divine work is named. So the second thing we learn as Jesus followers in Jerusalem, as Paul and Barnabas pack their bags and say their goodbyes, we learn that a, a divine work is given a name. It's recognized for what it is. From the sheer fact of disagreement, the text brings us to the basic reason for the dispute. And the reason boils down to a series of events and reports that are troubling us here in Jerusalem. News is spreading about the conversion of the Gentiles, verses 3 and 4. And this worries us, Jewish Christians, because it's happening, if you like, without any, any obvious link to the, to the original community. That's us. So it has come about that some of our leaders, the ones that belong to the party of Pharisees, speak up. And what they say is this in verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So a formal meeting is called. Verse 6. The church throughout the ages has referred to this as the Jerusalem Council, the first council, the first ecumenical council. And as an aside, just I should point out that some traditions, uh, some Christian traditions, the ones that tend to downplay the authority of the councils in the life of the church, make of this meeting something uh, less than a council. But I think they overlook the importance of the occasion and just how crucial is the precedent that is established here. The precedent is this. Churches from two very different worlds, Jewish and Greek, are going to learn that they are one people of God, not two. They are going to learn that they need each other so as to better see their own blind spots. And as they meet through their representatives, they are going to learn something about the basis and reasons for unity. Now, to, to be back in the story as Jewish believers, what we learn specifically is, is that this new work of God among Gentiles helps us to see ourselves from where? Well, from the outside. From, we jump outside. As whenever we read scripture, we are, we are trying to jump outside and let it read us so that it challenges us. And the same is going on here. We're learning as Jewish believers that the Gentile experience of God working in them and among them is helping us read ourselves from the outside. To focus on the main question, uh, that God has been trying to teach us all along. And what, what is that? What is that lesson? Well, we're reminded of it when Peter gets up to speak. Verse 7. We recall that he had avoided the company of Gentile Christians. Check out Galatians 2. He'd been rebuked for that, but that he had also learned through a Gentile, Cornelius, that it's by faith that men and women are saved, whether Jew or Gentile. That's back in Acts chapter 10. And now he reiterates that when he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are, the Gentiles. So at this point, James, our other key leader here in Jerusalem, gets up and explains that this apparently new thing, that the Gentiles can come to God apart from ceremonies of the law, isn't at all contrary to what God had taught us in the past. In fact, it flows directly from what he told us through the prophets uh, about his concern for Gentiles. As James says in verses 14 to 18, and I'll read them again, 
Simon, Simon Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who hear my name, says the Lord, and who does these, who does these things, things known from long ago. A dispute, a divine work is named, and a decision is taken. With the divine work named for what it is and the main lesson learned that faith, trust in Jesus is what's essential for salvation, we still need to address the practical implications. So we come to the third topic in this passage. We learn as Jesus followers here in Jerusalem that there's a decision, a formal decision that needs to take place. We've been made aware of the fact that, that God's work in one place has implications for the whole church. And there's also the matter of our common witness in the world if we claim to follow one master. For this, we turn to James, who adds another word, verses 19 to 21. It is my judgment, therefore, he says, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to do what? To abstain from the food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. I'll say a word about that. What James is calling for here, essentially, is a minimal standard of behavior for fellowship. A minimal standard, a standard which both parties will agree to adopt. Now, why propose such a standard? Well, partly for mutual recognition, but also so that their collective witness together in the world won't be threatened. But here's, here's the problem. Does this standard leave us with a necessary ceremonial law after all, that we're saved to the extent that we observe these external things? Does it mean that we're part of God's family only as long as we avoid food offered to idols, the meat of animals whose blood has not been properly drained, strangled, and immoral sexual acts? Now, I don't think the point is that we end up back in law apart from grace. So what is going on? And here, here's my reading. I, I'm um, hoping for further light on it, but here's, here's, here's I, my understanding. For our, if we're thinking of ourselves as Jewish Christians, for our part as Jewish Christians, we're asking our Gentile brothers and sisters to adopt a minimal standard for behavior, essentially as a, to honor us, as a courtesy to us in the Mother Church. Why should we make such a request? Well, our membership in the Jewish community and our witness among fellow Jews are not going to allow us to leave behind these dietary laws easily. And most certainly, most certainly, not God's guidelines for sexual relationships. More than that, Gentile adherence to this minimal standard 
will, will serve as a means to avoid publicly contradicting our witness here in Jerusalem. I think that's, that's me trying to take a stab at what's going on there in this standard business. Now, from their side, the Gentile believers have our blessing as the mother church to work out their calling within a very different culture with its own challenges, but free from the requirements of all the purity laws. And in the end, the followers of the way will not be split in two, one Jewish, one Gentile, but will be one people, one bicultural, bilingual people, if you like, but one people all the same for the sake of a common witness in the world. So this brings me to the last point I want to note regarding the decision that's taken. It's that the two communities, Jewish and Gentile, are blessed for their decision, for their obedience. Even as the Jewish believers are blessed by the news of God's word spreading among the Gentiles, confirming what the prophets had foretold, the Gentile believers are encouraged by the ministry of Judas and Silas, sent by the mother church, receiving that the representatives, to minister among them. So along with the letter that James had proposed, the two men, being prophets themselves, according to verse 32, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers there. Look at this marvelous picture of this, of this mutual encouragement going on with two very different communities. I don't, we shouldn't miss the reciprocity here, the reciprocal nature of the blessing. God blessing two communities through each other. And we shouldn't miss the overall message, which I would summarize as this. God's blessing is for Jew and Gentile alike. The dispute that emerged was settled in council. And the decision was reached through that means and through the Holy Spirit's guidance. As James said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Verse 28. I'm coming to a conclusion. <clears throat> Just a few words about what this important moment in the history of the church means for us. It's clear that our passage helps us to acknowledge the gospel movement as a world movement. It's a world movement that will inevitably come apart here and there, but it's a movement that God is in the business of uniting by his spirit and of using for his glory. As we think of our identity as world Christians today, here and now, what are the main things that we need to bear in mind as we carry the message of Acts 15 with us? I think we can summarize them by comparing the from here to, to there work of Paul in Athens, in Acts 17, with the from there to here vision we've seen here in Acts 15, where Paul is also, of course, involved. Let's recall what the from here to there vision looks like. Well, for starters, there's an awareness of the world's great need. There's a passion to go and tell, and there's a readiness to announce the gospel. On top of that, there's a boldness to proclaim the message of Jesus and to call sinners to turn to him as Paul does there among the polytheists in Athens. God now commands all people everywhere to repent, he says. 
The primary mode of the church here is, we see, as a scattered people, as God has seen fit to send his people far and wide so they can bring light to others in darkness. So let's look at it in the inverse, if you like. What's the from, from there back to here vision? Uh, what does that look like? Well, it begins as Jewish believers become aware of God's great love for the non-Jew as well. Or they're reminded of this deeply biblical truth that's already theirs. The passion that they begin to cultivate is that of hospitality. As they willingly uh, hear and receive Paul's testimony and, and, and are ready to receive this as a word from, from the Lord himself. And where does the boldness come in? Well, it's there too. It comes in uh, as the mother church becomes bold to announce through Peter and James what this means for the whole church, for all of us. And finally, the primary mode of the church here is as a gathered people, as God brings his people together to bless them and to encourage them as they encourage one another mutually. So may this two-way vision be, be ours today. Uh, as we seek to live out our calling as world Christians. As we go to the nations with, uh, with the gospel, may, may we also make every effort to be of one mind with others who call Jesus Lord. May we be quick to listen to their uh, concerns and slow to assume that our, that our own concerns are always synonymous with, uh, with central gospel concerns. May we be quick to be peacemakers and to show hospitality and slow to find fault and to build religious empires. And finally, may we uh, find much joy as we look forward to the day uh, when all the redeemed, all God's people uh, of all nations will be gathered as one. Amen.